Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts. Simply hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts now. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Something is creeping Don't follow it down. William Shakespeare once said, No legacy is so rich as honesty. This episode, we look at just what legacy Barry Clue has left in his wake. I'm Sarah Ferris, and you're listening to Clueless, the long con. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Since I've been back at work after the Barry Clue business, I've been made redundant twice, and I'm now working for another printing company, and currently I'm working full-time at the moment, which is very tiring, and we just can't plan to do anything. Well, seven episodes into the series, you might be starting to recognise some of those victims' voices. The one you just heard is that of Gary, who you may recall having enjoyed all of 18 months of retirement at the age of 70, thanks to Barry Clue's legacy, is now back at work full-time whilst fighting stage four cancer. One of the first jobs I had when I went back to work, I absolutely loathed it. And it was one afternoon and I was fuming about Barry Clue, what had happened. And I decided I'm going to go round to his house and confront him with it. And I finished work that night, went round to his house, and his BMW was still outside. 
And I walked up to the front door and he answered the door. And I asked him, what the hell's going on? And he said, look, look, Gary, he said, look, he said, don't believe everything that you read in the papers. He said, it's not all true. And he said, something good is happening soon. And we had a talk. I can't remember everything we said. And I said, you're nothing but a bloody liar. And he said, look, he said, I swear on my mother's grave, I'm trying as hard as I can to get your money back. That conversation was had around six weeks after Barry's offices were raided by the serious fraud office. He says, I swear on my mother's grave, I'm trying as hard as I can to get your money back. Such a loaded sentence. And it makes you wonder, what motivates a con artist to say such things? Is it delusion? Is it pathological lying? Or simply a way to get, in this case, Gary off his doorstep? It certainly had Gary shaking his head in disbelief when he said it. Let's revisit Dr. Das's insight on this one. I think all con artists have a lack of empathy, but I think some people like this guy, Barry Clue, must have like a, an extra layer of decreased ability to feel empathy if they commit these cons to people that they actually know personally. Mm. I suppose the other thing is denial to a degree. It's quite a complicated one because when I say denial, they know what they're doing is wrong. That's unquestionable. But I think possibly, especially in a Ponzi scheme, they might believe that they can somehow make it back miraculously, even though that doesn't make sense to us. So uh, like a gambler would be a perfect example of this. Somebody who, despite the fact that they've lost money over and over again, they're convinced they just need to make one or a couple of good bets and they'll, they'll win it all back. So I think some con artists, some con artists just don't care and they they just want to mm. run off the money. But I think some, especially people like this guy, especially if they're in a Ponzi scheme, probably to a degree, even though deep down they know it's not going to happen, part of them lives with this hope that somehow they'll turn it around and be able to get everyone's money back. You know, it never fails to surprise me just how differently a con artist's brain works from perhaps you and I. But I can certainly understand how Gary's brain was working after another day working at a job he loathed when he should have been retired. And Barry was at that stage still not even locked up. Oh, yeah. And that's what I couldn't get over. You know, people had seen him flying at the airport. He'd been up to Auckland and, and still, he still had his BMW. In fact, Barry Clue was out and about for months before there was any clarity around what he would be charged with. His offices had been raided in May 2019. His companies were placed into liquidation on August the 29th. September the 4th, his authorised financial advisor status was finally revoked. And it isn't until October that the official assignee assigned to untangle the financial fallout releases its very first report stating at that point that there are 170 plus known creditors owed 12 to 14 million, a number that would grow to almost 16 million by the time the charges were laid. All that time, the investors are incrementally coming to the realisation that there is in fact little hope for their life savings. And as you can imagine, so many of those investors desperately wanted to know just what Barry Clue had to say for himself. Well, come November 19th, almost six months after the investors' worlds came crashing down, Barry Clue was ready to talk. Here's Mike Houlihan of the Otago Daily Times. Well, like all other media organisations, we've knocked on his door and been shooed off. About two or three months after, I was at my desk and I got an email from someone called Barry Clue. 
And I uttered an obscenity very loudly in front of several colleagues who were like, what's going on there? And it was an invitation to sit down and talk to him. So I replied straight away saying, you know, yes, I'll, I'll take that up. I mean, the entire town and beyond wanted to know what was going on. At this point, it's important to stress Barry hadn't been charged with anything. So it was, what the entire case was still a mystery to, to many, many people. I was aware that there were several different problems with doing this interview. Firstly, he's been investigated by the SEFO. So there were legal implications about even sitting down and talking to Barry at that point in time. What I reported from that could be problematic if he wasn't actually charged with anything, uh, because then you're basically talking about someone's alleged crime as a matter of fact. There was the fact that I could find myself being used by Barry because no one talks to a journalist without a good reason. And it's normally a selfish reason. And he obviously had his own agenda for contacting me. So it was, it was always going to be a very, very complicated story to do. But Barry's reason for choosing me, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about this to this day, he thought my coverage had been the fairest and the most balanced to date, uh, and therefore he thought I would be the best person for him to talk to. Now, given I've been practically calling him an alleged thief for six months, okay, fine. So a lot of people you know, say, look, why didn't you ask him flat out where the money was? And I did ask him where the money was, but the problem with asking that question is he hadn't been charged with anything. So you're implying by asking him where the money is that the money was stolen. So right out of the gate with the question everybody wanted to know the answer to, you run into legal issues. So thanks to Mike's interview, the investors finally had answers straight from the horse's mouth. This is from the two Otago Daily Times articles dated the 19th of November 2019. Here's what Barry says. These people were good people. They weren't assholes. They weren't people who deserved this. It's just not something that I wanted to have happen to them. I always had faith in my abilities to rise above the situation as it was. I am very aware of the pain, anguish and hurt that I have caused. It's sickening, I know, said Mr. Clue. Well, he's not wrong. It certainly is sickening. And I think it's interesting the language that he chooses. He is aware of the pain that he has inflicted. It strikes me that being aware of something is claiming you know something exists. But knowing something exists doesn't mean you own it. I think he wanted to to express remorse, but he couldn't really bring himself to do so. He was sorry for the fact the situation had happened, but he wasn't sorry, if you know what I mean. And what about the missing millions? Well, here's what Barry has to say about that. I actually can't remember all the things that it was spent on, but it was certainly not on a predominance of personal assets. That was not the case, he said. In fact, after the interview with Mike, he actually files for bankruptcy. He did go on to say, however, no money has gone offshore. And as it turned out, I did use almost all the answer, which was him saying, I basically, it's all gone. I don't know where it's all gone, which I thought was disingenuous. But, you know, that was his answer. But he also obviously had an agenda of what he wanted to say, how he wanted to portray himself. One of his, his things that he wanted to do was stress that no one else in his family was involved, which I was happy to report because I had looked into his, into his family and, and some of their background and spoken to people about whether they were involved and... They sounded innocent to me from what I've been told by other sources. The article then rounds out with an apology tour. He says, sorry doesn't really mean anything. A great start. But I am extremely sorry for how this has happened. I know that these things are really bad, but I can't let it go until I have paid this back. At this stage, I have no idea as to how that might happen, but I also refuse to think that in the future, I will not be able to recompensate the people who were once my clients. I have a deep belief in my own ability, but time will tell. 
he still firmly believed to the day he was sentenced that if he'd been left alone, he would have found some way to recover the money and paid everybody out. I think given the scale of money involved, that's an absolutely ridiculous belief and speaks volumes of the delusions he was operating under at the time and the colossal ego that the man has to believe in his own abilities to that degree. He was ashamed he'd been caught. He was ashamed that he'd done it. But yeah, I, I didn't really detect a colossal amount of remorse. He didn't really just come out and say, look, I'm so terribly sorry about what, what I've done. I think it gave the investors an insight into what had happened and why it happened. They could hear him speak in his own words, and they themselves didn't detect an apology or any remorse. I basically just let him talk and then put it down on paper. And if you think Lisa Barry Clue as a result of having read that story, I couldn't possibly comment. Couldn't possibly disagree either. There is so much to unpack in the article. So I will put a link in the show notes and you can draw your own conclusions. But I want to pick up on that promise that Barry made. He can't let it go until he has paid the money back because Barry did have a plan. One that he told Francis when she, like Gary, had the opportunity to confront him and ask him just what was his end game. I asked him how was all this going to end and he said oh, he had lots of seminars planned and he figured he could make at least $2 million a year and he was going to start paying back the eldest people first and then work his way down to the younger ones. He was going to work till he was 70, he said. And I was just, how weird is that? I mean, honestly. If he had seminars organised for this next coming year, those people that were taken in by him then would have been paying us back and it would just perpetuate it, just carry on. So it was just, I, I don't know, it was just bizarre, totally bizarre statement to make. It is a bizarre statement. Is it delusion or just another lie? A question I put to Dr Das. I think it depends on the individual's case. So you have to kind of examine the entire behavior. Mm. So somebody who is pathologically lying, even though they might describe like some sort of exit plan, they won't have put into place any actual methods of, of carrying it out. Somebody mm. who's delusional usually, um, well, actually both of them will lack empathy or lack remorse, but somebody who is delusional just won't be able to logically explain what their situation is. Does that make sense? Mm. So, so mm-hmm. they're, they're two slightly different cognitive processes. Like m- majority of people that commit fraud, especially sophisticated fraud like this, are not mentally ill. So most of them are doing it out of greed. Like Mike Houlihan said, Barry had his own motivations for doing the interview that day. It appears to protect his family from the fallout. Whilst creating the podcast, I did reach out to Barry's family, offering the opportunity to share their side of the story. And not unexpectedly, and somewhat understandably, they have declined to respond. If you're enjoying Clueless The Long Con, then check out other podcasts by Community Podcast Productions, like this one. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. firm believer that when we see the worst of humanity, we also see the best of humanity shine through. And in fact, in the months between the serious fraud office raid and the charges being laid against Barry Clue, that's exactly what started to happen. For Karen, who had only recently buried her husband Chris, those glimmers of humanity came in the form of her husband's former bosses. A couple of my friends who I'd talked to said, you need to go and talk to a lawyer. He was like, I actually don't know if I've got any money. How am I paying for a lawyer? I actually text one of Chris's bosses and I, I knew him. He's a very good man. Like, I actually need someone who's wise. And they said, tell her to go and see Jeff. We'll pay for it. So the Jeff Karen is referring to is Jeff Merkin, Managing Director of Wilkinson Rogers Law Firm. It was actually just what I needed. I just needed someone to listen and to tell me what I needed to do and also I suppose too the fact that I didn't have to worry about how I was going to pay for that like was huge and and actually that's kind of how Jeff and the group started was the real generosity from Chris's employers where they kind of said yeah we're gonna do your your one of ours where as our family we're going to look after you and they did The group Karen refers to there is the group of investors that formed in the months following her meeting with Jeff Merkin and Jeff has got a really good social justice part about him where he is in a position where he knows that he can help people and he has people who he calls on to help with that and he actually has been an incredible gift. Like all of the people in that committee, they're amazing. They just are so generous with their time and their expertise and with that, world needs more people like that. Less barriers, more people like that. I love that. More Jeffs. Less berries. There's a bumper sticker in there for sure. And Karen wasn't the only one moved by Jeff and his team's generosity. Here's Richard. And there were a lawyer took up the case pro bono in Dunedin. See, he's just another guy that wanted to do the right thing. <laughs> wanted to do the right thing, this guy. He just knew it was fucking wrong. 
He just knew it was wrong. He wanted to do the right thing. If anybody gets any money back, I don't want any of my 45. I'm out of the game now. Yeah, people need that way, way more, more than I do. I don't know why I'm sad. <laughs> That's really weird. I'm just thinking about the other ones. I can't imagine what it must be like. It must be absolutely eating away at that. You've worked all your life and somebody literally comes and steals it from under your nose, you know? That, I just feel so, so sorry for him. Hearing the emotion and empathy packed into Rich's voice there, it strikes me as such a stark contrast to Barry's absolute lack of it. I mean, think about it. Richard has lost $45,000, which unless you're Elon Musk, is a decent wedge. And yet he isn't upset for himself. His concern is for his fellow victims. Victims that before October 2019, Richard had never even met. They put it in their Target Daily Times that Local lawyer Jeff Merkin is coordinating a victims group and there'll be a meeting. And he, he had no answers really, but at least people all got together and they were all talking to each other. And if you looked around, it was strange, wasn't it really? It was like being at a funeral. And most of them were probably 50 plus. So he certainly targeted those sorts of investors. And I walked into this room and here were all these very normal, educated smart people who actually had all been drawn into it. They'd all been deceived. You can imagine the pennies dropping left, right and centre that day. Something along the lines of, oh, Barry transferred money to your bank account by mistake. Me too. He said he had fat fingers. Yep. And then the knowing nods. For the investors turned victims, the scale and methods of Barry's cons were finally coming into focus. And keep in mind, that was five long, lonely months after the raid by the serious fraud office, and Barry was still yet to have his day in court. So while the SFO wove all those threads of Barry Clue's case as tightly together as possible, time was ticking on. So much time, in fact, that the headlines in the newspaper were starting to feature the fallout from one steaming bowl of soup a la bat. So fast forward to February 2020, Barry Clue finds himself standing in court and finally answering to the 12 charges laid against him by the SFO. Very early on, when Barry was first in court, I decided I was going to attend. Part of that was about sometimes if you are in fear of seeing somebody or in fear of how that will make you feel, it's almost like they have a power over you. And I had a fear of what it would be like to see Barry. I had a fear of how that would be for me, how that would make me react. And I went to court that day and that was actually fine. I I think to be sat there and to realise that everybody apart from one person in that courtroom were against him and, and everybody could see what a rotten sod he really was. Barry faced 12 charges laid by the Serious Fraud Office, including individual charges of forgery, theft by a person in special relationship, and obtaining by deception, to name but a few. And how did Barry respond? Well, essentially, he didn't that day. He entered no plea. Here's Hamish McNally from Stuff. The one chance we got to speak to him, he came out of court, and I just thought, oh, Sod it. And I just put the video on, just ran up to him. But what you don't see in that video is him just he's, he's pumping his fists. And I was swear he was going to clock me. <laughs> so I just chased him down the street, you know, asked him, what have you done with the money, Barry? Do you feel bad, Barry? Or are you going to apologize to your victims? And he, he couldn't say anything, but you can feel the last 
couple percentage points of humility draining from him because he really didn't have anything anymore. And then he hopped into the back seat of a pretty humble car and drove off. Perhaps Barry could see the writing was on the wall, as a couple of weeks later he actually changed his plea to guilty on 11 of the SFO charges, and a date for sentencing was set. Barry's impending lock-up, however, was disrupted by the entire world going into lockdown. But in July 2020, it was finally the day the investors had waited for. It was sentencing day, and expectations were high. What were my expectations? I think from a lot of talk that was going on, it was around about eight years that he could possibly get. And I just wanted him to be in a cell with a guy four times his size who had a penchant for pathological psychopaths that stole money from innocent people. Many of the investors submitted their victim impact statements for the judge to read as part of the sentencing process. And others bravely stood in court that day and chose to read their statements directly to Barry, including Karen. I thought somewhere along the way I have to get some power back from this. There has to be some consequences for his behaviour. It wasn't easy to read that in court. Uh, I don't think I've actually felt so physically sick doing it. He, He looked a wee bit emotional with some of those stories in court. But then part of me just thought, is he acting? Right, that with everything, I just thought, is he acting? Because he, he he's a guy that could go up on stage and and laugh or pretend to cry or sing or whatever. I mean, it takes a wee bit of balls to do that. And there's no greater stage, no greater theatre than in the high court, right? This austere old building where everyone's staring at you, and you've got to stand in the dock and you just got to take it, take it, take it. The judge was so good. He just hit every nail on the head. He had listened. He had heard what we'd said. And and the judge himself, I think he was astounded at what Barry Clue got up to. And and I always remember him saying that he hasn't worked a day in the last 25 years. Barry kept a pretty poker face throughout all the court proceedings. In the sentencing, Mike Crosby, the judge, was very, very harsh. The judge pretty much gave him as much as he possibly could. And... So just what does harsh look like in the New Zealand court system for someone who has stolen from 81 innocent, hardworking victims? Well, let's load up those scales of justice. On one side, we have the stolen $15.7 million. That should have been a future for a child with fragile X. It should have been more than a miserly 18 months of retirement for a 70-year-old man with stage 4 cancer. And it should have been the legacy of Chris Churcher to his wife and children and grandchildren. So just how long a sentence would balance the scales? Eight years and 10 months is the answer. Eight years and 10 months with a minimum parole of five years and four months. Now, in fairness, it was a sentence that was as harsh as the judge could give within the system he was operating. And the victim's reactions, well, they were mixed. Those who expected less were elated. I think he did incredibly well. I actually didn't think Barry would get that long. I just left there and I was completely euphoric. I was just like, yes, I felt like some level of justice was served. And of course, there were others who'd gone in with higher expectations and were bitterly disappointed. I was probably gutted that he didn't get more. He will get out earlier than eight years. He's got to serve five years, but like... (laughs) Five years for all that he has done. No, no. He'll be sitting down there with his laptop 
with his underfloor heating, he's no, justice hasn't been served. No, I'm very bitter about the whole thing. Barry's still living relatively comfortably in a, in a prison in New Zealand. So, yeah, I think the system needs to kick up the ass and the system should be in prison. But how do you do that? I feel that the courts have given justice as much as they can, but I, I don't think I would feel that Barry Clue has ever done his time or been punished for what he has done to people. He's taken the rest of their lives, you know, another 20, 30 years off people. Every day they have to stop and think, you know, can they afford this, can they afford that? So, no, justice, I don't think, has been done as far as Barry is concerned. You know, he got the sentence that he deserved, but he, you know, even then, like, telling victims he was going to do them right and pay them back. No, no, he's not. He was still lying up to then, and I'm glad the judge called him out on that because I'm sure some of those people would have possibly believed it. To me, that was just re-victimising the victims yet again. Hamish McNally, stuff reporter there with his take on it. And having been on the inside of a courtroom on a regular basis, I wanted to know what his feeling was on Barry's level of remorse. I think he's, he's just remorseful that he got caught. Yeah, absolutely. He, he knew that there were people in very difficult situations. He knew that there were people wanting to save for the future of a handicapped child that would outlive them, right? How that wouldn't pull at your heartstrings and think, what am I doing? Well, what, where are the life choices that I've made to lead me down here to suck their money dry? But there's not an honest bone in that guy's body. He cheated them. He cheated their families and he cheated their future. He's just scum. No, I don't think he's got any remorse at all. I think he's well practiced at it and it just meant nothing to him. It was just dollars at the end of the day or his lifestyle or his image that was at stake if he let it go. I think he he was pretty obviously self-centred and he needed to be seen as successful. So we were the means to that end. The voices of Jan and Francis there, also not convinced that Barry has any level of remorse when I asked them. A question I also put to Dr Das. Again, remorse, a bit like empathy, is it's quite easy to fake, isn't it? So mm. I, I guess the way to really analyse that is remorse through behaviour rather than through words. So if he's saying that he's really sorry and he's, he's apologising to all these people and they see him in prison as part of re- restorative justice, that doesn't mean anything because anyone can say that. But, yeah. you know, if, if he has in any way tried to make amends, uh, I'm not sure how he would because I imagine all his assets would be seized, but if he did in any way, then I suppose you could argue that he might have a level of remorse, but I'd be surprised mm. if that happened, to be honest. But you could argue that he he can't really have remorse, can he? Because it's not something he did in a sort of impulsive flash of rage or anger. It's not like, you know, other people, other patients that I see might get into fights when they're having an argument or get drunk and do something that they clearly regret. But this is somebody who's carried out calculated activities for decades so i'm not sure if it's even possible that he could have any level of remorse i mean obviously he's sad that he got caught i don't doubt that but whether he actually Mm. really cares about the victims i don't know if that's possible aside from the prison time the other part of barry's sentence was that the judge also put a figure of five million dollars in reparations to be paid back to the investors now, realistically, if Barry gets out of prison, the chance of him even earning $5 million legally is pretty slim. But 
As a statement to their victims, it was very powerful. If Barry was to earn even $1 when he came out of prison, part of that dollar would be paid to the investors. He would carry a financial burden for the crime, a burden that the investors, thanks to Barry, were also likely to carry for the rest of their lives. And of course, Barry, full of remorse and swearing on his mother's graves, according to Gary, well, he accepted it like any remorseful, repentant human would, right? The reparation, I was really happy he got $5 million, and then very, very disappointed when he appealed that. Well, they say actions speak louder than words, even when your words are swearing on your own mother's grave. I just thought that, fine, he's not going to give us back $5 million, but he will have to pay something back, and now he doesn't have to pay anything back, and I was really upset about that. How, how dare you ask for an appeal when we're paying for you for this trial, and then we've got to pay again for an appeal? That disgusted me and kick us in the guts and say, no, you don't have to pay it back. And in fact, when it went back for appeal, I remember thinking, oh, for God's sake, Barry, just leave us freaking alone. Leave us all the chance to kind of heal and to kind of move on a little bit from this. Barry Clue is right now, at the time of recording this podcast, serving his time in a prison in New Zealand. So we know where he is, but if he's there, where is the $15.7 million? Here's Hamish McNally from Stuff. If you look at the financial statements, there was, there was almost nothing in there. So what, what does that mean? When did he get rid of the money? Was there was just no more money coming in? At some point, you must know that things are going to catch up with you. I'd say at least half must have gone into paying out other investors. Given the length of time that the scheme was perpetuated, you'd have to spend a lot of the money that went in to satisfy people taking money back out again. So a lot of it's gone back to other people, not the people who originally invested it, I suspect, but other people. He bought property, he leased cars, he liked going out on to dinner, he flew overseas regularly on holidays, so a lot of money would have gone on those purposes. There's practically little to show for what he spent, that's for sure. That's Mike Houlihan there of the Otago Daily Times, and he's right, pitifully little to show for all of that money. When the SFO raided his office, the fact that Barry had hardly any money in his bank accounts might seem like he was unravelling and he knew the end game was coming. Add to that, he was actually in the process of purchasing a luxury home. A six-figure deposit, by all reports, had only recently been paid. But I'm inclined to put this theory forward based on conversations with Dr Das. To you or I, that lack of funds looks like Barry is end of days. But to a person with psychopathic traits, that's their resting state. They constantly live in that state of risk-taking. In fact, they probably thrive in it. So whilst an empty bank account may have you and I breaking out in hives, for a con artist like Barry, it just means it's time to get the grift on. But, you know, again, only one person really knows the truth. And even if Barry told us, (laughs) would we actually believe him? But I'm not the only one with theories about Barry when it comes to the money. Yeah, look, a mutual friend of Barry's, and this is a long time after sentencing, he said Barry had a full-on conversation with him about Bitcoin, that he had invested in Bitcoin as something that he could offer him. And and maybe it's part of Barry's shtick that, you know, he's trying to appeal to a younger generation as well. Maybe just appealing to boomers and upwards wasn't going to be the cash cow forever. Or, Or maybe he had actually invested in Bitcoin. I mean, we just don't, there's no way of tracing it, right? And it was also interesting, I put the question to the SFO, 
and they said that was a line of inquiry and that's about as far as it went. I mean, they know it's so hard to trace, right? And I guess the only way you know if he was eventually released and suddenly bought expensive assets or something, you'd have to wonder. I think the Bitcoin one is a popular story. I'm not convinced he's sophisticated enough to invest in Bitcoin, at least with any level of understanding of what he was doing. I mean, percentage-wise, he's adamant that there's no money stuck overseas in any secret accounts anywhere. Certainly the SFO has not been able to, or the official SFO have not found any so far as I'm aware. So it could just be what it appears to be on the surface, that he's stupidly squandered the whole lot and has very little to show for it. I don't believe we'll get any of it back. I can't see how he could go through $15 million, even over 25 years. I think there is money somewhere, and only he knows that. But I don't think we will ever get anything back. I really don't. Jan's view is typical of the victims. Several believe that Barry has the equivalent of a pot of gold hidden somewhere. But I can tell you one thing. If he does, on his release from prison, he is going to find it very hard to dig up without 81 pairs of eyes on his every move. That is, of course, assuming he stays in plain sight. But if that was me, I don't think I would be hanging around the New Zealand equivalent of the sitcom Chairs. You know, where everybody knows your name. So the question is, will they ever know where the money went? Here's Trevor Lang from Trevor Lang and Associates. He knows a thing or two about following the money. Well, where did the money go? If there's no pot of gold somewhere, then by analysing all the bank statements that anyone can get a hand on and other information, you should be able to trace where it went so that it, you won't necessarily find any money but at least the investor creditors will have the satisfaction of knowing how their money was frittered away. In March of 2022, the six-monthly official assignee report into Barry's companies was released, and there was a notable absence of the aforementioned pot of gold. There was, however, one asset, proceeds from a real estate transaction completed by Barry just days before the raid to the value of $450,000-odd. And the report did show where some of the investors' money was frittered away. It was on the purchase of that property. Here's an excerpt from Mike Houlihan's article in the Otago Daily Times dated the 12th of March 2022. Even though the funds are in excess of $455,442, the amount of loss to all investors is around $15 million. Therefore, after costs, the anticipated return to the investors will only be around 2.5 cents in the dollar. I'd like to think anyway, I've emphasised that I think this is an important case. I think it's affected our community so deeply in ways that we don't understand as yet. It's not just an isolated bit of, of grubby criminal activity. It's something that's affected so many ordinary, everyday, decent people who didn't deserve to have this happen to them. Lessons have to be learned from this. And just what are those lessons? Well, I am certainly not qualified to untangle who is legally responsible here. But what I do know is that 81 victims have been left holding the baby, let down by a system that allowed an authorised financial advisor to operate in plain sight for years and years. And if you are one of those people doing right now what the government advises us all to do, save for our retirement, you should most definitely be questioning the value of that word, authorised. Because as it stands, right now, that word has left investors like Bronwyn robbed of their dreams. The idea of financial people don't have any safety net 
you know, like lawyers and things do. It's, it's quite bizarre that people can be victims when they themselves have done absolutely nothing wrong. And the whole profession ought to have a fund that is there for safety. But however, yeah. What Bronwyn is referring to there is the idea that financial advisors should have a fidelity fund, like, for example, lawyers. The fidelity fund exists then to protect the public against loss as a result of theft. The purpose of that is to encourage the public to use services provided by those legal practitioners with confidence. Or like a malpractice insurance for doctors, it makes you ask the question, shouldn't investors be protected in a similar way. But the reality for the 81 victims today is that they are left with being a cautionary tale for the rest of us. They live with the impact of Barry Clue's crimes daily and will do long after Barry Clue has served his sentence. And just what does that impact look like? Well, I think as we round out this series and you and I head back to our lives, that we hear what that looks like for the victims that were brave enough to share their story. Chris didn't get the choice. So every day I kind of have to make the choice. Don't get me wrong, some days it's damn hard. Some days I actually would be okay with not. But I think what I did notice in this last year is that I actually started being able to grieve. Like Barry robbed me of my ability to grieve because I actually needed to just survive People who see you think you're doing okay, but underneath it's just below the surface the whole time. And another strong feeling when this first happened, I remember reading the newspapers for the next few weeks and reading the death notices and think, God, they're lucky, you know, they've died and they've escaped this. And that's how strong it was. When it first happened, I couldn't think of anything else for months. Every waking moment was just what he'd done to us. It was absolutely devastating. It's very stressful. It's a huge, huge hit. No more income coming in. It's probably never going to leave us. He was just coldly and calculatingly stringing me along, along with all the other investors. You can't put into words really how you feel about that. If he makes any money, it's now his. He doesn't have to give it back to any of the people. And I find that absolutely ironic. How do you target someone with a disability who doesn't have any other means without that monetary support that we had there for him. He's just really real scum of the earth. Clever, calculating, evil person. We were groomed, all of us, for all those years. He probably thought I could actually afford to lose my money. Yeah, I could still feed myself, but I'm not, I don't feel comfortable in retirement in the next 10 years. I don't even think I could look at him again, really. Every time his face comes up on Facebook, my heart goes down again. I, I don't think any words w- would ever help. You know, I could swear and I could curse and this and the other, but I don't think it would change anything for us at all. I've never hated anybody in my life, but I hate him. I do. I hate him. He's totally ruined our lives. The only time I would have wanted to meet him would have been just me and him in a quiet place, no cameras, and I would have kicked the shit out of him. And, and, and I know that's wrong. I know that's wrong. But I would have done it for people that probably couldn't do it. I don't care about my life. I've lived my life. I can survive. But I constantly worry day and night about Bradley. Mm. I love the boy to bits. And I just don't want to see him end up in a city flat somewhere. 
stuck in a hovel doing nothing. Mm. Yeah, it, it tears me up. Not only did I lose the money, but I lost Chris. And Chris's legacy is the fact that he left these really incredible children and, you know, these stepchildren and people who loved him and a wife who loved him and daughter. I mean, he left all these people behind. He did die. But what's Barry's legacy? Forever, when you Google his name, Google's going to come up with that. How does that impact on his children? How does that impact on his grandchildren? If I could say one thing to Barry, it would be, how do you intend to change your legacy? I'm Sarah Ferris, and you've been listening to Clueless, the long con. I want to thank the victims who have been so selfless in revisiting their pain in the hopes that their stories will stop others from falling prey to this world's oversupply of con artists. Thanks also to Hamish McNally and Mike Houlihan, Trevor and Emma Lang, Dr. Shoham Das, and to Araha Min for the beautiful theme music. This is an independently made podcast. You can find out more on Instagram at Community Podcast. That's con with an N. Please support the podcast with a five-star review, a share on social media, or even go old school and tell a mate on a dog walk to have a search for Clueless the Long Con, wherever they listen to their podcasts. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Enjoying Clueless the Long Con, then check out other podcasts by Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming back to London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June 2022 and launching in Glasgow on Saturday the 10th of September 2022. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. 
hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by CBS Reality, the expert-led true crime TV channel. I will be at all crime cons this year, Las Vegas, Glasgow, London, you name it, I will be there. So do come and join us. Quote, see the C, that's C for con, the C for con, for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.